We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember this information, it is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I can't stand this terrible bebop. <laughs> whoa, 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 Cam, can you hear like a low rumble of drums? It's like <laughs> it's building up to something. Maybe mm. our guest. Oh, a crash of the cymbals. And look who it is. It is Mr. Calvin Dyson making his triumphant return to the show. Hello, Calvin. How are you? Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. I, I think with this analogy, it means that I now need to like fall over a balcony or, and, and die, pretty much. If we're, uh, or scream. I guess I could do that. <laughs> well, apparently, the cymbals rocked an American family. So are you going to mm -hmm. rock our family? Oh, <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> no, thank you very much for having me back on, because I, I was on previously when we talked about Goldfinger, and um, I know that you've done Hitchcock films in the past, and I just practically begged <laughs> to come on for, the, for a Hitchcock discussion at some point. So uh, thank you very much for having me on. Well, it, it's a pleasure to have you back. I mean, I, I fawned over you having you on the show last time. You know, the, the Bond guy on YouTube for me, you're the guy I go to for, for Bond info on YouTube. But, uh, you know, now a second time we're like old friends now. So you just you're just kind of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to know, you know, your specialty is Bond, but obviously there's a lot of connections between Bond and Hitchcock. So where does your history with Hitchcock, you know, go back to? Oh, well, I guess Hitchcock was uh, sort of what got me interested in film, you know, beyond just bits of entertainment, like watching his films, like The Birds was the first film that I remember watching at like 10, 11 years old, something like that, where I was really like, oh, wow, I really want to know what this is about. And the way that film ends was kind of my introduction to film theory, reading about why it ends in such a way. And then also uh, just behind the scenes technicalities and all, all that kind of stuff, how the films are actually made. So um, it was really kind of Hitchcock that got me interested in filmmaking in the in those senses. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then, as you say, there's a lot of connections with Bond. Um, Hitchcock was obviously uh one of the top choices i think back in the when they were starting the series with dr no to potentially direct and whatnot and um indeed he has like so many spy and espionage films in his filmography it feels like it would have been a real a fit that would have really made sense um except that for the most part hitchcock uh even in his spy films they're about everyday people getting swept up in extraordinary situations whereas james bond is very much an extraordinary man in extraordinary situations so i think that's where the the uh, the disconnect is uh but no i i'm a massive fan so i i'm very happy and grateful to be here talking about this film so thank you well on your youtube channel which i i briefly referenced before you've done a couple of hitchcock reviews yes um have you tackled any of the two versions of this film we're talking about today uh, no actually 
Um, oh. so, so this was a really good excuse to, um, to yeah, revisit uh, both of them. Um, I was just saying before we started recording, I really enjoyed your guys' uh, episode on the original film. Um, and, and, and I don't want to re uh, repeat too much of um, what you already said there, because I pretty much just agreed with everything <laughs> that you uh, that you said there, including your... I, I, I detected a slight hesitancy at not allowing it on the knock list, but um, I, I do agree with you. I, I don't think it's... It's almost there, but it's just not quite yeah not quite on it it's one of those things with hitchcock where you tend to want to come down on a yes because of his legacy and how pretty much almost every one of his movies that we'd be covering is fairly iconic but you then have to divide like which of the must-sees versus which of the ones you should check out after you've seen the must-sees mm. oh yeah exactly yeah well, you did mention a couple of films before, but maybe before we talk about this film in particular, what are some of your other favorite Hitchcock films? Oh, uh, well, Psycho is like, I, I would cite that as my favorite film ever. I love that thing so much. Uh, it's perfect, even with its flaws, <laughs> if, a, if a flawed thing can be perfect. Um, uh, Rear Window is another one, Strangers on a Train, North by Northwest. Uh, Vertigo has really, I, I remember seeing that for the first time as a 11 year old, whatever, and it having no effect on me whatsoever. And then growing up, I was like, oh my God, no, this is amazing. And now it's just one of my very favorite films. Um, and then, but I am also a huge fan of his thirties, um, filmography like before he went to america so things mm. like the lady vanishes 39 steps of course sabotage i really like young and innocent i really like um and yeah the original man who knew too much is very much in that bracket i always kind of think of it as being of that quality i think that those films are just slightly better than it i mean i think 39 steps is just yeah superb piece of work um lady vanishes too Especially when you take into account that there's like a one-year difference between Man Who Knew Too Much and um, and 39 Steps. It's like just the leaps and bounds between those two is very significant. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's just, it's fascinating seeing him in that era where he's clearly finding his groove and uh, picking up a lot of the techniques and stories, to be honest, that he'll explore much better um, later on down the line. And The Man Who Knew Too Much is so interesting because it's the most overt example of that, where he's literally, like, remaking the film, which is um, really interesting. It's kind of impossible not to compare the two, really, when you're watching either of them. Well, I, I think we've uh, waltzed around it, Cam, but what are we talking about this week? We are talking about the 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, starring James Stewart and Doris Day. Now, a lot of you will probably know the premise of this film. You might have seen the original version or the remake version, but for those who haven't seen anything, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. And oh boy, I've just opened the page. Settle in, folks. The man who knew too much. A little knowledge can be a deadly thing. A widescreen Technicolor remake by Hitchcock of his 1934 film of the same title. A couple vacationing in Morocco with their young son accidentally stumble upon an assassination plot. When the child is kidnapped to ensure their silence, they have to take matters into their own hands to save him. Yeah. It's a bit wordy for me, but... <laughs> I, li I like the Vista Vision part. That was uh, what really grabbed me. <laughs> yeah, really important for a synopsis, isn't it? You know, how it's been presented. <laughs> I need to know that it was done in a you know color format that I approve of. <laughs> um, 
well, usually at this point when we have a guest joining for like a remake, I would ask Calvin, I'd ask you what you thought of the original, but you you sort of said before, but any other thoughts about the original version you want to talk about now? Yeah, sorry, I sort of jumped the gun a bit there. Um, That's fine. Uh, I, um, no, I think I've, I'm sort of too much in agreement with your previous <laughs> review on it to have any kind of original thoughts to say of my own, I suppose. Um, I know that Hitchcock's quote about this, I think you might have even said this in your previous episode, that he, you know, he felt that the original film was uh, made by a talented amateur, whereas the, um, the remake was made by a professional. Um, and I, I think that sums it up. I think you go to that uh, original film and you can see a lot of the things that he will experiment with and do better later on. It's kind of a blueprint in a lot of ways. I do think that there are a couple of things that it does a bit better than this remake, and um, I, I guess we'll get into talking about those as we go on. Um, yeah, but maybe I'll maybe I'll save that for <laughs> yeah a little we'll, bit later. We'll come back to that, but. I, as usual, have never seen this film until watching it for this uh, podcast, so I have nothing to add at this stage because I just I've never seen anything, apparently. <laughs> but um, Cam, what about you? When did you first see this film? I watched this one back when I was doing a run through a lot of the Hitchcock movies I hadn't seen. Like when I started, I watched the obvious ones like Psycho and The Birds and North by Northwest, but I think it was when I picked up the Hitchcock. I think I can't remember which box set it was the signature one I think the one with the red felt on it and it came with like a massive collection of them and I had also picked up a cheap DVD of the original and I know I watched the original first and followed it up I think maybe even like a day or two later with the remake which was actually a mistake because it kind of robbed it of some of its you know surprises I was finding myself more in that mental exercise of just tracking where it was diverting and where it was sticking to the actual plot. So I wouldn't say the first time through was a great experience, especially when I was also watching things like Rear Window and, you know, some of these other classics I was, you know, watching for the first time or revisiting in that box set and going, well, I don't know, Man Who Knew Too Much, not quite up to snuff with those. But it is one that over the years, my opinion has very much changed as I've separated myself from that experience of just watching the two of them back to back. What about you, Calvin? Any any thoughts, memories of your first experience seeing this film? Well, um, similar to Cam, like it, it, it's part of that um, Universal uh, Studios collection of the Hitchcock films, though it was originally a Paramount film, and I believe along with several of the others like uh, Rear Window, uh, Trouble with Harry, Hitchcock made them at Paramount, but it was a contractual thing that eventually the rights reverted to the family. Um, and then I think Universal bought them or licensed them or something from the Hitchcock family and so it's included in all of their box sets now even though it does begin with the Paramount picture in VistaVision at the uh, at the start of it um yeah no I remember watching it I must have been 11 12 years old um, around about that time uh for the remake for the American one because I was working my way through these uh Universal Hitchcock DVDs um, the original one I didn't see for a good while afterwards, and a part of that was um, uh, part partly um, as uh, Cam alluded to, is that some of those early Hitchcock films had really bad DVD transfers um, because they're so old, and I don't know if it's public domain exactly, but there were a lot of really cheap, nasty <laughs> DVD transfers of those early films out there now it's brilliant now you i think in the states you can get the on criterion collection with beautiful restoration and all that kind of stuff here in the uk it has a very nice blu-ray transfer as well um 
so so I kind of waited until I was even at that young an age I was a bit of a stickler for what video quality my 1934 entertainment came in <laughs> uh so I kind of waited for that um and yeah I maybe then I was too familiar with the remake um to appreciate it on its own terms uh sometimes I kind of wish maybe I'd seen the original first but um yes yeah, so, so this one uh, goes back to my childhood my mum was a massive doris day fan so that uh is, is very much um at the forefront of my mind watching it with her because she had the whole doris day dvd collection and whatnot um yeah what about you scott well i mean to to your point there calvin and it's interesting to, a parallel with cam there because cam saw them both in a row the original and the remake Calvin, you saw it the other way around and kind of judged it that way. I am watching them, I suppose, sequentially, but there's been about two months in between. But there, that is one thing I did struggle with, and I, I think we'll get into in the review, is trying to separate the two films almost. It's like they they imprint on each other because they are basically the same film with a few differences. But um, Cam, why did it get remade? Well... It's kind of a long, convoluted story, but um, producer David O. Selznick bought the rights to the original in 1941 and was urging Hitchcock to make a U.S. version. And Hitchcock just had no new spin on the material. He was like, I just did this a handful of years ago. I'm not that interested. And it wasn't until, you know, in the 50s, Hitchcock went on a uh, 28th anniversary trip with his wife, Alma, and they made a detour to Morocco, and he suddenly had the idea of a family on vacation in Morocco and the child getting kidnapped and basically spinning off into what would kind of be the inspiration for the movie. And it was going to originally have a different title. They were going to, I think, work with the title Into Thin Air, which may be a little catchy. I don't know. I kind of like that. Um, but it's so samey that then you fall into that Thunderball versus Never Say Never Again thing where people watch Never Say Never Again and are like, wait a second. <laughs> okay, so... It's interesting that he was kind of resistant to the idea of doing a remake and then caved in when he had a concept in mind, but then also didn't want to call it the same thing. Would that Into Thin Air have been so close of a remake or would he, would he maybe have tried to separate them a little bit? My guess is it probably would have been pretty similar, but I also just wonder if if you're making the US version in you know those days, you'd probably assume that a lot of people wouldn't have even watched the 1930s British version. Well, how did it, I mean, you'll be the expert. Actually, you both would be the expert on this one. How did it work at that point? You know, if if the British version, I imagine, got played in North America, um, there's been 20 years in between. And obviously, there's no home video. So unless you caught it in theaters, you had never seen the original, basically. Yeah, and I can't imagine they would have been doing a lot of revival screenings of like a 1934 British film. Yeah, precisely. I think um, we, I, so I guess we think of remakes as being like quite a modern Hollywood thing, but it was very common back. At, I mean, the Judy Garland Wizard of Oz was like what the third or fourth screen version of that story, like that. But obviously, we remember the iconic one. Um, by this point, one of Hitchcock's earlier silent films, The Lodger, had been remade, um, not by Hitchcock himself, um, but it did star Ivan Novello, the original actor who was in the um in the lodger so remakes were a very um yeah quite common thing it was a good way of uh cashing you know brand recognition in a way for people who might remember uh the old thing but then also retooling it for a different audience um if necessary 
Um, and I know that this film was part of Hitchcock, like, old Paramount Pictures, a film in the contract, and so this one was kind of a, uh, oh, well, we, good, we can do this. <laughs> we can dust this off. Uh, it's a kind of ready-made concept. Yeah, and it was his follow-up to The Trouble with Harry, which was sort of a curious black comedy that he made that didn't really take the world by storm. It's an interesting film to watch. I don't know, for a comedy, I find it a little too leisurely. Calvin, are you a fan of that one? Oh, I'm really... No, I'm not a fan, like, in, in as much as, you know, I, I'll happily watch any Hitchcock film, but, no, I, I'm very similar with that. It is a comedy, but it's so, it's so, so dry, <laughs> and so... I, it, it is a dark comedy, it's about, like, a, you know, a dead body and all that kind of stuff, but it's... Uh, the, the pacing of the humor is so like it takes a long time and it is it i think it feels a lot longer than it is i think it might only be like a hundred minutes long but it feels like it's two hours plus um good cast i'm just trying to picture an alfred hitchcock version of weekend at bernie's <laughs> basically in, in some ways um they're not like carrying around a body at parties all weekend but uh yeah it's it's kind of playing with similar kind of idea i actually saw that one i mean i'd seen it a couple times but i went to a 24-hour film festival. They do it in Art House Theater here in Vancouver. And they'll program just a long run of movies. And they'll usually work in a Hitchcock. You know, they closed one of the 24-hour film festivals with Rear Window, for example. But I remember it popped up that they were doing The Trouble with Harry. And everyone kind of went, like, got excited because it's a Hitchcock movie. And you could feel the energy just kind of die <laughs> over the next two hours as people are, like, <laughs> on movie number, I don't know, seven or eight at that point. And it's like, this is not the Hitchcock I was hoping for or anticipating, you know, this many hours in. <laughs> it is one of those where you feel like he's really getting something out of his system with it. Like, every, every now and then, like, you know, you'll... Uh, well, with an author, for instance, Ian Fleming, just to bring it back to Bond, like him writing uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, which is a Bond novel entirely from a female protagonist perspective. And it, sometimes you just get the sense that the artist just needs to get this out of their system and then they can move on. And I, in a way, I feel like The Man Who Knew Too Much Remake is of a similar vein, really. It feels like, oh, okay, I need to get back on track and this is a tried and tested formula that I know works. So let's hop back on that. Because it is curious that he remade this. He never remade 39 Steps or in, in as much as, you know, using the, the same title again. As I say, there's a lot of um, thematic and plot similarities in so much of his stuff, uh, particularly the spy stuff, but this is the only one that he went back and used the title on, so um, he must have felt some kind of affinity towards it. That was going to be my follow-up question, was that why was this the only one that he officially remade? But I guess it's more just a, we'll never know. I, I wonder if it was also just like a concept he didn't feel like he hit a home run with the first time, versus like... I don't know that he felt a great urgency to remake The 39 Steps, for example, which was a hugely acclaimed movie. Mm. You probably true. heard our review and just thought, no, nah, I didn't nail it the first time. Let's do it again. Sure. <laughs> yeah. He's a time traveler. Yeah. <laughs> well. So um, they uh, were taking the original story of the 1934 version, which was done by Charles Bennett and D.B. Wyndham Lewis, and... Hitchcock initially brought in his, the writer of the movie Spellbound, one of his previous films, Angus MacPhail, to work on the script for this remake. And at a certain point, um, they had just kind of a bit of a separation, and he brought in John Michael Hayes, who had um, begun working in TV in 1951 before jumping over in 54 to do 
Rear Window, and he would also do To Catch a Thief and The Trouble with Harry. So he had kind of a streak with Hitchcock here. And um, this would be the final one they do together. And that's because while he has the sole credit on this movie, there was actually a bit of a battle because Angus MacPhail felt he contributed quite significantly. Hitchcock apparently put both men's names forward as who he thought the writer of the film was. And this really made John Michael Hayes angry, and it caused a rift between the two, and they never worked together again. So, interesting case, and I would be very interested to know in, like, the year 2022, if you had a situation like this, I, I think Angus MacPhail would probably be getting credit. Well, I mean, how does it work now? Isn't it like a percentage thing? You have to write a percentage of the script to have a credit, but you can also have a story by credit. I don't know how that works. Maybe he'd have that. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to have a certain percentage, but like McPhail has argued like he was even writing scenes during production as well. So that's where it gets pretty iffy. Like a lot of movies nowadays you might have a whole group of writers that aren't credited because they just did little punch up bits on set. But generally if you had two major talents like this working back and forth on elements of it, you'd have both. I think of when we interviewed John August and I brought up Dark Shadows, which turned out to be a very unpleasant memory from his past I did not know about. <laughs> but he has a story credit on that film, and it was because his original draft was just completely rewritten. Versus, right. yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that's just something to do with the guilds. I don't know if they were they around at this point, all the the writers' guilds and stuff. Yeah, it was called the Screenwriters Guild at that point, not the Writers Guild of America. But right. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, the production for this one was actually quite complex it went 37 days over schedule including six shutdown days and they went over budget and that was largely because um while they were shooting in morocco riots broke out between um you know the people of morocco versus the french protectorate that were ruling the country and the production department managed to get out of there just days before the french uh, before the french administrator was assassinated so um some uh, pretty tense circumstances going on around the filming of these tense circumstances it's interesting because I had a lot of trouble telling where they were actually shooting in Morocco compared to it being like a backdrop screen, rear projection, and just on a set somewhere. It didn't feel like they were actually there that long. But they were there long enough. Yeah, I think I think um, Hitchcock and the principal actors were there for a very short time, um, and then I think it was the assistant director or the associate producer um, Herbert Coleman who stayed behind with like a second unit to get all of like the shots of the uh, coach coming in and uh, background plates and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, this is a pet peeve of mine with Hitchcock, like his uh, reluctance to do too much on location, and uh, I think there is an over reliance on. Uh, studio shot back, like really obvious back projection, and in this one it's particularly frustrating because you know that they were there on the in the location. Doris Day and James Stewart were actually there, um, but then they have you know, and they'll just have a have a shot where the two of them are walking down past a load of uh, market stalls, and then it'll cut just a bit closer in, and then all of a sudden they're in the studio, and it's the uh, the back projection going, and it just it takes me out of it a bit, um, which is a shame, because I think it's quite a, a interesting location and not one that you really... Like, Hitchcock famously didn't like location shooting all that much at all. Um, so to see him in such a, a, a different kind of place from his usual, um, you know, US, UK 
settings is interesting. Um, I hear it was the only time on set he ever wore anything other than like a, a, a shirt and a suit and tie. Apparently he was turning up in a short sleeve t-shirt, much to his own chagrin, apparently. Oh, and Doris Day hated the food, is another mm. thing that I saw in my research. In the film, it's played kind of like James Stewart is the uh, the sort of the the cultural rube, as it were, who's he doesn't really um, you know know much about the uh, the other culture or uh, and whatnot. Whereas in reality, apparently it was Doris Day who was uh, very very much uh, wanting her home comforts. <laughs> it does cause that weird sort of mental effect when you're watching the movie because you know they're there. Like you you can see these actors are in Morocco, mm. and then you'll have a shot of them like in a carriage or whatever, and the background is clearly a plate, and you're like. I don't understand. I know they're in Morocco. Why does it look like this? Uh, it was all the stuff with the acrobats in the bazaar. I just thought, pretty sure that was what was happening in there anyway. You could have just had them stand next to it and say a few lines. But yeah. I don't make films. Hitchcock said that he didn't like... Um... Uh, like do like if, if you film it on location, you need to do the voice, you know, the ADR, the looping mm. um, afterwards, because you can't really use the uh, the the sound on location. And apparently, he didn't like doing that so much. Um, I mean, I I think it's a, you know it, it doesn't make much of a difference for me personally, but I guess for his own taste, he is um, Alfred Hitchcock. I guess I can't argue with him too much. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> So the movie had a budget of $1.8 million. Domestically, it did 11.3. International, we're talking about a 1950s release, so it's very hard to track that sort of stuff down. But either way, that's a pretty good multiplier on your initial invest investment, even though it did you know, go over budget. Do you happen to have, uh, I, it's going to be the first of our times comparing, but the budget for the original? Oh, I can't remember. It was like something like 80,000 pounds or something. That number's jumping to my mind. Yeah, it was five pound. Yeah, sure, something like that. Okay, fine. Uh, threadbare. I understand. Okay, All right, this is definitely the Hollywood version. Understood. Yeah, it was uh, definitely cheap. Um, so the top three for this year: number one was the Ten Commandments. Number two was Around the World in Eighty Days, and number three was Giant. Uh, those are three very big movies. This speaks to the era of, like, the we're heading towards that period in the '60s where they would bloat everything out. And they would almost crush Hollywood with all these massive spectacles. And we're at that point where it's building towards that. When you look at those top three, those are all three very long films. Did you say that the third film was called Giant and it was some very big films? That is correct. I did say that. (laughs) You really wanted that laugh there, didn't you? I did. (laughs) And it was delayed, but I got there. (laughs) And Around the World in 80 Days won the Oscar that year. It's, I think it's, probably one of the worst oscar winners of all time it's really rough really rough was this at the time where like things like 20th century fox were just, like bribing <laughs> the academy members to vote for their uh, for their things or was that i know they definitely did that with the rex harrison doctor doolittle but that was probably about 10 years oh. after this <laughs> yeah i think it was probably just a year of when they were really going for big star stuff so it's like you have mm. 37 stars showing up in that movie and it was big and expensive, and they were like, how could we not give this the best picture? But you watch it now, it's torture. <laughs> Wait, so there was a Doctor Doolittle film that was bad and didn't have Robert Downey Jr. in it? Uh, there have been two previous ones that didn't have Robert Downey Jr. in it that were bad. Three. There's the sequel to the Eddie Murphy one. Oh, God, yes, you're right. Wait, are you saying the first Eddie Murphy one was bad? Oh, is this controversial? Oh, okay. I'm alone here in my Eddie Murphy fandom. Okay, that's fine. Moving swiftly on. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, so a couple other notes just to wrap up this stuff. Um, the movie was a hit. It landed in the top 10 for that year. Um, exact placement, you know, again, we're dealing with the 1950s, so it gets a little muddy. But um, the film did win one Oscar, and it was nominated for one for best song for whatever will be, will be, que sera, sera. And it became like a real standard for Doris Day, and she would perform it in two more movies. Uh, she performed it in the 1960 film Please Don't Eat the Daisies, which I have not seen, as well as 1966's The Glass-Bottomed Boat, which is a spy movie, so it means we'll be tackling it on this show further down the road. I get to hear the song again. That's nice. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, and apparently the song was inspired by the movie The Barefoot Contessa, starring Humphrey Bogart and Ava Gardner, which I haven't seen. I have it on my shelf, so I need to check that out and see if I can spot the uh, the connections. I spent too much time looking up this song today, finding out that it won an Oscar and such. But it's, mm. a, it's a mistranslation as well, which I quite like. It, it's, it's a literal translation from whatever will be will be. If you actually translate that into most... I think, what, what language is it trying to be? Is it Spanish? Is it French? Now you got me wondering. But either way, it doesn't work, and it doesn't come out. It doesn't. It's not even particularly melodic. So they just made it a melodic thing, which is nice. Though it's been stuck in my head for about two days since I first watched this film. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and so um, I mentioned that Hitch would not work again with the writer John Michael Hayes, but he did work the you know that same year again. Moving forward with Angus MacPhail, they did 1956's The Wrong Man which was Hitch's really only real true story kind of biopic film with Henry Fonda. Pretty solid. Um, I think it's a good movie. Mm. And Calvin mentioned it earlier about um, The Man Who Knew Too Much kind of being out of circulation for a while. It was one of the five. Uh, Vertigo was also another one. And also Rope, um, The Trouble with Harry, and um, Rear Window. The five of them wound up in sort of this deal where it was Hitch's production company, breaking apart from the studio and the movies were pulled from circulation in the uh, 1960s and it was largely because of tv airings that caused a breach of contract between the two over copyright and so it wasn't until 1984 that they were re-released so there was like 20 plus years where those five movies were not in circulation that's interesting i didn't realize it was as a result of um uh tv airings that's uh, yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah, because I would imagine when they put that contract together, and it was an eight-year contract, I believe, between Hitchcock and uh, Paramount, mm. um, that you wouldn't have seen TV necessarily being as big a thing as it would be by the end of that contract. Hmm. Well, I think we've, uh, you know, we've gone into, we, we, we've got to the point now where we need to talk about this film, and I am very curious to know what we all think about it in 2022. So let's all grab our swordfish and uh, take shots at each other. That seems bizarre, but Calvin, you're our guest. You go first. What do you think of The Man Who Knew Too Much, version two? Sure. Um, I'm actually quite a big fan of this one. Um, I I appreciate that it might be a bit... It it doesn't have the, um, the notoriety or the special shine of a Vertigo or a North by Northwest or a Rear Window. Uh... It, it it is kind of it's it's um you know it's it's pot boiler sort of, sort of Hitchcock stuff I guess but it's uh, I really like it I always enjoy watching it and I think a big part of that is down to the leads I love James Stewart and Doris Day as the leads of this um, I think there's some really standout set pieces throughout I think even something as simple as uh, James Stewart walking down a little snicket when he's on his way to the taxidermist 
all that is is just him walking down this tiny little alleyway. You don't even really know if there's any danger coming. You just know that there's another guy around in the vicinity somewhere. But it's uh, to generate suspense out of that moment's really great. Um, I love the whole Albert Hall sequence. Is just to re- I think when you see that, you're kind of like, oh, maybe this is exactly why he wanted to remake this thing. This scene because it is so expertly constructed and i love the music all the way through it i think it's brilliant um it doesn't have a, a signature standout villain like peter mm. Laurie, uh from the original one i don't think i think it kind of suffers a bit from that i also think it maybe suffers from replacing the uh the big like bloodbath shootout of the original with <laughs> james stewart pushing a man down some stairs <laughs> like it doesn't quite work as the same uh climax um but even in spite of those things i just i i think it's um yeah it's uh it's i well i think it's to go back to hitchcock's own quote about it you really do feel like this is a professional filmmaker um crafting this there is another quote from him on this film where he was asked to kind of elaborate on that and he said that the difference would be that in the original man who knew too much i wasn't audience conscious whereas in the second one i was and i think that that really shows in this one i i feel like in the original the characters are kind of uh uh ciphers really i don't think of edna best and leslie banks in that film as if you ask me to describe them in an adjective i don't know if i could with those characters they are just kind of vessels to kind of get us through all of these situations here i feel like you do have your audience surrogate quite firmly in those two lead characters i think they're much more improved um yeah, sorry, I, I could I could wax lyrical for some more, but I'm curious to know how you two feel about it. Well, I was going to say, I really feel robbed of not having a Doris Day pull out a shotgun at the end and snipe someone off a roof. Right? <laughs> what a missed opportunity. <laughs> I, uh, I love that bit about the first one. Yeah. Well, it feels like they're playing to the strengths of the actress there, where, I, I mean, they obviously gave the wife the gimmick that she was a really good shooter in the first one, whereas here it's like Doris Day is such an amazing singer. They're like, okay, we've got to tie that into the finale versus her pulling out a shotgun. Which she could have done both. That's how you like end the song. <laughs> I would pay for the version of the film where during the song she stops and then pulls a shotgun out of the piano and shoots someone. That's that's what I want to see. Oh my god, that's the 2022 <laughs> remake version. I think actually. <laughs> oh, if only, if only. Um, so for me, this one is one that. I don't think it like reaches the heights of the movies around it. Like when you're talking about like Rear Window or Vertigo, like those are all-time masterpieces. But I think this one is just a really, really absorbing both travelogue in Morocco. I really do enjoy a lot of that stuff. But also just in terms of the overall caper, it feels a lot more well thought out from a character dynamic than the original did. Because the original we talked about, when you get to that things like the shootout and stuff, they don't even know what to do with the lead characters anymore. They're like, ah, just shuffle them off screen and let the police take over here. Whereas it feels like this one was very much written from the point of view of follow our characters, give them things to do, make Doris Day a very active character within the story. Because, I mean, her child's been kidnapped. She, it makes sense for her to want to, you know, resolve this mystery and get him back. Whereas in the original, the wife just kind of sat at home a lot, which could be, you know, the differences maybe in how women were portrayed in film, the 30s versus the 50s and gender roles, you know, and the expectations of an audience. But it's just much more satisfying here because you're seeing two superstars do amazing work together in the film. And so for me, like, 
it has just those memorable set pieces I enjoy. And just from the craftsmanship stuff, it's Hitchcock really knowing how to put one of these movies together. I don't know that he would, you know, at the end of his life have put this in his all-time great passion projects, but I think it's one he makes incredibly well. And you can see the ways that um, it would connect well to like a North by Northwest in his career trajectory. Do you know, it's strange. I was really curious to know what you both would think about this film. I'm glad I'm going last because I'm not such a fan. Oh, voice of dissent. Ooh. I'm not trying to nice. I'm not trying to give a hot take. It's none of that. It's just I think one of the problems I had, and I will preface with this, I had trouble distinguishing the films. I had seen the two of them within two months of each other. And I spent a lot of time analyzing the first one, and then I had to analyze this one a lot. And so I'm sitting there. The first time around I watched it, I sat there sort of plotting and going, okay, well, this is their version of that, and da 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 da. And that's all they've changed in this film. The second time I watched it today, I, 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 put, I put that to one side, and I thought, let's just take it for a film. Let's pretend like I hadn't seen the original, which is a, what I imagine most audiences that saw it the year it came out felt the same way. And I think it's probably the definitive version of this story. But I think it f it's maybe just not as interesting. It's almost too glossy for me. Not only is it perhaps a little bit long um, compared to the first one, I just think it, it does so many things right. I don't want to like beat up the film. There's lots of things I like. I love uh, James Stewart and Doris Day. I think they're the best things in this film. But I think it is, as Calvin said, lacking that Peter Laurie actual villain to get the, the real sort of sense of tension and fear that the original version really has. And so you, I spent a lot of time sort of watching James Stewart walk around the streets of Brixton trying to figure out what's going on, which is lovely to see old Brixton. I really like that. But I don't know. I, I just didn't get as connected. But then it's strange. In the beginning, it's really fun. And then there's a middle act where i just found it to be not particularly interesting and then as soon as we get back to the royal albert hall and cam you know how much i love the royal albert hall of course i can't wait to kick you down those stairs <laughs> mm. i loved seeing that and calvin's right i think it's a very it's wonderfully put together i think it's it's interesting i think it goes for like 12 minutes with no talking just the music yeah. playing and i don't think many films yeah. could pull that off and this film does credit where it's due and i love the stuff in the embassy afterwards because i i really like doris day i think it's it's really nice to see a strong female character that is has strength in being a mother and the film doesn't dismiss it there is strength in that and mm. it should be celebrated and that is what ultimately saves the day is that connection she has with her son and the singing that's you know set up at the beginning paid off at the end wonderful stuff i i mean and and I I love the escape from the embassy. Yes, I yeah you know, would have wouldn't have minded the shotgun and the piano, but that stuff's great. I, I, but for me, I just think the middle bit really weighs it down. It really it, I was disappointed. I was quite excited going into it. I think I was disappointed with the result. Interesting. We talked about North by Northwest, you know, quite a while back now in the run of the show. But of this era, like, do you for you is there like a big difference between the two in terms of Hitchcock espionage stories? I think North by Northwest is just a lot pacier. It just seems to be quicker on its feet. You didn't seem to have a moment for you to really sort of sit and dwell. And that's a good thing in my book when it comes to these type of spy films. This isn't trying to be a Cold I, I, War story. No, go on, Calvin. 
Oh, no, no, I, I just, uh, to your point there, I do agree with you. Uh, there is that scene in this film uh, where James Stewart goes to the taxidermist, which is just a completely, <laughs> complete red herring, yeah. pointless tangent that, I, as I say, I really love that sequence kind of building to it, um, where he's waiting around on the uh, on the streets and you can hear the footsteps coming and going, all that kind of stuff I think is really lovely. But does nothing yeah. <laughs> plot-wise, and then it becomes so broadly comedic um, when the, the guy's sort of faffing around with the <laughs> uh, swordfish, and it's a little bit too choreographed. <laughs> it, you know, you can see that the guy is... No no real person in that scenario would handle the swordfish in that manner, where the blade is constantly going at James Stewart's throat because they don't actually have any intent on harming him. Um, it's just a big misunderstanding. Uh, but I do agree that in that middle section yeah once they arrive back in the uk to the albert hall sequence i I do appreciate that there is a lull there for sure and i I just think like i'm not going to sit here and compare it just yet i think maybe we'll do a little bit of that towards the end i I think that's probably half of my problem i was i was coming into Mm -hmm. this from the people on twitter that i spoke to other fans of hitchcock films even cam that this was the definitive version and I, so I was like, this is going to be a smash hit. I cannot wait to find a film that goes up against North by Northwest. And it doesn't quite get there for me. I think maybe that's where my disappointment comes. Not to say that it's a bad film. I just perhaps had my expectations too high. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, that scene with the... <laughs> I think the scene with the... Um, it's not, I don't think it's a swordfish. It's a sawfish, oh. I think. We used to have one in our aquarium because it has like the saw blade uh, protruding from the nose or whatever it's called. I, I'm not a fish how, person. How big was this aquarium? <laughs> Things like... It was. It's, oh, it's big. They had like a huge tank of sharks and there was one of those swimming around too. And uh, oh, I loved it as a kid. Um, but uh, that whole sequence... It's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. It is like a total, you know, mislead. Like, you know, it looks kind of sinister. You've got those taxidermied animals that are all looking like they're going to pounce. You've got the tiger that is portrayed in a very threatening way facing towards Stuart, which I have to wonder if that led into Psycho with the birds of prey hanging up over mm-hmm. uh, Marion Crane in that scene. It feels like Hitchcock loved to revisit his motifs and that feels like it may have evolved from there. But I think I enjoyed it more on the rewatch. And I think I would have agreed with you, Scott, the first time I saw this movie going like, why is that scene there? Like, this is unnecessary. And I feel like I'm just, you know, it's wasted shoe leather of a character walking around on the revisit. I feel like it's kind of like a comedy highlight for me where it's just so ridiculous. And that's kind of what I find funny about it. When James Stewart's getting his hand stuck in the tiger's mouth, the guy is walking around with that uh, sawfish. I don't know. Like it just feels like a scene that in a different movie he would have shown up you would have had all these like threatening you know like animals around him and kind of scary looking dudes and it would have led somewhere and the fact it's kind of played as a joke is kind of the novelty of it but it does nothing for pace i will admit that for sure (laughs) and and there's also like it's not just that sequence there's there's a couple of other things i think in that middle section that hold it back there's that they turn up at the hotel in london and the random set of friends turn up and have a chat and drink their booze and eat the room service 
<laughs> James Stewart. Oh, I quite like. Oh, you like that? Okay, yeah, that's like fine. That. That's fine. Yeah, that, that that made me laugh. There was, and occasionally when they cut back to them, and it's they're just more completely oblivious. It's like drunk days. As the film goes on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just her showbiz mates that have turned up uh, randomly. But uh, yeah, I, I quite like the stuff with them. <laughs> well, let I won't dwell on my problems just yet. Let's talk about things that we did enjoy. So, um, Calvin, something you really liked about the film? Ooh. Um... Oh, something I really liked. Well, I, I guess the, the leads, um, again, just to talk about them, because I think it is so central for um, a lot of the love that I do have for the film, that they do feel like, yes, they're movie stars, it's James Stewart and Doris Day, but they feel like a real couple. Mm-hmm. Like, so often in Hitchcock films, we see the the start of a romantic relationship or whatnot, particularly in these kinds of spy films. Generally, the two protagonists don't know each other prior to the start of the thing. In this one, they're a married couple, and they clearly, you know, they'll make the occasional little snide remark to each other. At one point, I think Doris Day says, oh, is this our, you know, time for our monthly row Mm. sort of thing? You get the sense that it's not really, I think it's kind of subtext stuff about how she had to give up her, career as a popular singer to kind of settle in the middle of nowhere with him because he just kind of likes the the quieter pace of life and it's he's a doctor that he, he likes his small town patients a couple of points i think characters are like well, why don't you just move to new york or london or something somewhere a bit more glamorous um but he doesn't want any of it and i like that there is just that little bit of resentment there there is something um bubbling there um so yeah I, th- there's a i think one of the well the standout dramatic scene really is the scene where james stewart is gearing up to tell his wife that uh their son's been kidnapped and he's gonna give her these sedatives he's a doctor he has all of these pills with him and he's you know he's not really telling her what they're for <laughs> at this point he just wants to like calm her down because he knows that she's gonna freak out and it's uh i i think it's good because it doesn't condone what he's doing i think he's clearly like really like oh god he can tell that he's feeling really bad in himself about having to do this and he knows what's coming and i think she acts the hell out of it i think Mm -hmm. she is absolutely phenomenal in that doris day i think she's interesting as well because she she you know hitchcock obviously notable for blonde leading ladies in his films and they're so often sexualized i don't feel like doris day's character here is that much even though she is very much of that look that he you know he clearly his type we see it time and time again madeline carroll tippy hedron grace kelly and indeed he did apparently want grace kelly for the lead in this but um i i think it was uh the, he, he and doris day shared the same agents and james stewart mca and they said well we'll give you james stewart but you need to also take doris day as well for this um so she she wasn't necessarily his first choice and I do wonder how much of the fact that the character is a mother and it's just Hitchcock's inability to sexualize a mother figure that she doesn't come across as terribly... I mean, you know, this is just my interpretation and, um, you know, uh, correct me if if, if you interpreted um, it, it differently. But I feel like she's very much, even though she has the that look, she has the Edith Head costumes, the grey suits that he loves to dress actresses in in his films. I don't feel like she is terribly sexualized in this she feels like a, a mother um in in a weird way uh and, and i don't know if that's a conscious thing on his part like he just can't 
sexualize a mother figure, or whether it's the Doris Day squeaky clean persona that's just uh, I'm I'm too familiar with that to kind of see her in um in in a more seductive role. I guess I don't really know. Well, I, I guess it must just be me because the the mother chain smoking and notorious just did it for me. I've got to say, like, <laughs> puffing away in that bed. I mean, wow, <laughs> look at her go. Uh, uh, to go, I'll I'll, to, I'll talk to the mother point first. I think I think you're right though, Calvin. I think he isn't sexualizing his lead female. I think it's to the better of the film because hmm. much as James Stewart is kind of our protagonist, it is the both of them. But really. If you look at what's achieved, it's mostly her that actually achieves getting their son back. He maybe physically does it, but it's her singing. You go back further, she's the one who sort of goes to the church first. All sort of leads back there. And then sort of going back to, you mentioned the scene together, that sort of where they, they have their monthly argument. And he tells her about the, the kidnapping. I actually... I'm not going to say I really dug her, him giving her pills, but more of a case of I, I like the concept of in his moment of crisis, he goes back to what he's been trained and that's medicine. And so he's like, okay, I, I need to calm the patient down and I can give her the bad news. And it just goes very clinical. It's not something that's really overtly said, but that's how I, I interpreted it. Hmm. That's actually a really good read um, of people going back to what they do best because mm-hmm. the way that she goes mm-hmm. to singing at the end to save the day as well and the way they deal with like a traumatic situation. It's a scene that like you would not have this scene in a movie now. They would not have no. the husband character mm-hmm. drugging the wife at all. Um, but, you know, Scott, you and I guested on the Is Paul Dano OK podcast recently where Cameron Diaz is drugged like three times over the course of night and day. And it was done for a comedy back in, what, 2010, not that long ago. 2010, yeah. Yeah. So I think the reason that scene works for me is, as you said, like, Jimmy Stewart seems very tortured when he's doing it. But also, like, it's not like he gives her the pills and the next day it's just like, well, everything's okay. You see that, like, she's carrying the pain of this moment and the anguish of it for a long stretch of the film. Which, in the original, <laughs> that kid went missing and they're like, well, cheerio. What do you do? <laughs> What was his first words when he got his daughter at the end? Where'd you get those pajamas from? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like there's a level of psychological, I think, realism going on here that I appreciated because it doesn't, as much as the movie is a little bit of that fizzy, in some ways kind of romantic comedy caper, it, it takes its moments of drama seriously. And I think that's a really good one. And also probably elevates the movie because you have scenes like that and i really really liked how doris day off the bat Mm. was just like figuring out everything that's going on she's like hey uh you're giving all this information to bernard he didn't tell you anything about himself and he's like oh you know you're crazy and that happens several times you know the people were watching her outside the hotel she's the one that's clocking everything that's going on and i wonder how much of that is the fact that we get it. He's from Indiana. He's this kind of small town doctor. She is an international recording star who is used to traveling the world and having more of a sense of what's going on around her. And it's never underlined. They're never having moments where she explains this to the audience, but it feels like there's a lot being written into that character and portrayed on screen that you can really read into, which is to me a sign of a movie that's just genuinely interesting because I don't know that I could read that much into either um, you know, lead in the original. Mm. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I I think uh, like how the different characters are reacting to um, the Louis Bernard character as well. It's in the original, you think Edna Best is she's kind of flirting with him. Like I think she is quite sexualized <laughs> in that film. Um, and you you sort of wondering what her angle is in that the the character motivations are quite unclear. I think. Um, yeah, in that, in that film, you're like, is she angling for some sort of threesome going on? Like, what, what, what's her deal with this? She's very flirty with this man for no reason. Whereas here, Doris Day is just naturally, a, or you know, quite suspicious about what's going on. She's a good judge of character, um, which is yeah, more interesting for a thriller like this. I wonder if the lack of sexualization with her character also could be, you know, the Doris Day factor is huge. She's a massive star and she's known for this squeaky clean image. But also, mm. this is the 1950s and it's a very conservative period in film. And I would have to imagine if you're making a major studio film where you have like a all-American small town family together, you're not going to be really portraying the wife in that kind of light. Yeah, completely. It's not like Grace Kelly in Rear Window where she's kind of like a... New York uh, fashion sort of designer socialite kind of thing, you know, coming in in these glorious gowns and whatnot. It's a very different character, even though Doris Day's character in this thing, she is a international uh, recording star. Um, it it does feel like, yeah, it, it's Doris Day as an international recording star. Yeah, and and Kim Novak in Vertigo, who that's the gray suit. Immediately when I saw Doris Day in that, yeah. I thought, oh my god, Vertigo, but um. She is also kind of a, you know, femme fatale, mysterious woman, so you're going to portray her, I think, more willingly that way in a film as well. Mm, yeah. So do we think that um, the, the film actually benefits from having Doris Day <laughs> in this? Like, if it was Grace Kelly, would it have been, would it have been the same? I, I don't know if it, if it would have been. I think Hitchcock would have let his own sort of... Um, gaze kind of uh, factor into that character's presentation on screen. I, I think it, just talking it through here, it just makes me think, oh, oh yeah, actually, Doris Day is kind of perfect for this part. I am really glad that she's here rather than the other kind of actresses he might have um, sought out for it. Well, I will I will ask the question I don't know the answer to. Does does Grace Kelly sing? Ah. Uh, I think, doesn't she sing in the movie The Country Girl? The movie she won the Oscar I think she sings in, um, oh, she's in that film with Louis Armstrong and uh, Frank Sinatra. Bing, is it Bing Crosby's in it too? Oh, what's it called? Oh. I'll let that bug you for a little bit now. Yeah. I know. Uh, I'm going to have to look this up because it is, oh, High Society. That's it. Okay. Oh. Yeah. I am curious, like, if you had Grace Kelly in your lead, would you be re uh, writing that character to even be a singer or it would be something mm -hmm. else? Like, maybe she's a fashion model or an actress or something like that. And um, that would very much affect the outcome of the movie because you obviously have the K Sera Sera and a lot of the singing stuff, and you wouldn't have that with Grace Kelly. So I don't mm. know. Um, and we are talking a lot about Doris Day and how important she is to this movie. Should they have changed the title? Does the title um, not work given how prominent she is? Mm. The woman who knew too much. Mm. That that would probably have been more apt. It is still, uh, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember in the original now. Louis Bernard's sort of dying words in the original. Uh, are they whispered to Edna Best or Leslie Banks? I can't remember. Here it's to James Stewart, obviously, isn't it? So he's the one sort of passed on that crucial bit of information. Uh, he he died. The 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 spy dies in 
the the, the mother's arms. Right. But I be- I believe then he goes to his. How does he find the? No, Jimmy Stewart runs over to the spy, and that's because the makeup smears off in his face, right? Yes. No, that's in this version. Oh, in the original. Oh, um, yeah. I know he dies in because his last words are like, "Oh, sorry." Pardon me, and then sort of dies in a very British way, which I still think is terrific. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that whole kind of, you know, a couple meeting a, like a friend abroad sort of, I thought that was handled much better here. Like the whole um, meeting the guy on the bus as opposed to uh, the skiing accident, I guess is what we can call it from the original. Uh, look, look, Calvin, I've met some of my best friends witnessing skiing accidents. <laughs> That's how Scott and I met. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was uh, I was just slowly dying on him, saying, "Oh bother, oh, bother. <laughs> start a podcast with me, <laughs> <laughs> give me a will to live." <laughs> well, uh, Cam, what about you? Like something that you haven't mentioned that you liked about it? Well, I think we should really look at that Albert Hall sequence because that is like the centerpiece, and there's a few really strong centerpieces in the movie or set pieces, I should say. You know, we repeat the uh, the church with the whispering going on and, and the um, you mm-hmm. know singing out loud dialogue. I think it's done a little better here with the post with the characters behind it, but that Albert Hall sequence is just unbelievable, and I really do like the version of it in the original. I think it's very well done there, but mm-hmm. the way they build it up here, I think, is just more effective. They set up i think the music cue a little better for the audience where they you know play it a couple times and it the music is i think more distinct in this film than the original like it really does stand out to me well it's been it's been worked on the score is it, the the musical piece is still the same but there's a there's a large choir this time instead of a solo female singer so it has a lot more dramatic effect just having a whole choir there yeah, like it's very operatic. And so mm. I think just like dramatically, it makes the scene come much more to life. And I'm more tracking where the progression of the music is going than the original. And you've also got like the James Stewart character also trying to get to the assassin. Whereas in the original, you, I believe at this point, the father is locked up in the house. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like just dramatically, it works much better because this music is very operatic. And you also have Doris Day having this internal struggle between saving her child and not doing anything versus stopping the assassination. And it's this push and pull back and forth. It's all playing out in her fa- on her face. No dialogue whatsoever and just the music. And you have Bernard Herrmann, you know, who's actually acting in the film, leading the orchestra. And it's just like the combination of the way he's shooting all the music sequences looks incredible. But then like Doris Day's performance and when you build to that big crescendo and Jimmy Stewart like storming in in the assassin going over the balcony, it's just like you could show those 12 minutes just over and over on YouTube. Like that's the sort of thing I could just watch in isolation happily. Mm. Yeah, it just play, it's almost like a music video for that uh, storm clouds break, I think, or when the storm clouds broke. It's something like that. Yeah. That, uh, piece of music. Yeah. It's saying a lot that uh, Bernard Herman did like that original piece of music, which was, I believe, composed specifically for the first film. It was, um, yeah. Yeah. And he liked it so much that to just repurpose it here obviously expand it out and i think it um yeah i mean i i I think the reorchestration whatever it is i don't know the technical terms but whatever he did to it it just oof elevates the whole thing and just how it's timed with the sequence as well i think um as you pointed out having james stewart's character actually coming in looking for the assassin like that gives it some agency that trying to get the ushers involved and trying to convince people but we don't actually hear it we just see them uh acting is really great 
Um, and Doris Day's scream is fantastic, like comparing mm. it to yeah, again the original, and um, yeah, just like it's like goosebumps kind of moment. It's fantastic. I love some of the shots as well. Like when there's a really great shot, and I it, it looks so it looks like a trick shot or a special effect shot or something. It's when the assassin it's of the assassin and he's got the gun yeah. like directly in front of him. It's like super close up, but everything's in focus. I don't know if they just used a particular lens for it or what. It looks like there's some kind of weird perspective thing going on, but I don't think there is. I think they might have just had a particular lens which had a really great focus on it or something. But it's just such a striking image when you have the choir coming in at that moment as well. I think it's beautifully done. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful shot, and also there's a there's a shot of the the Luger pistol slowly revealing itself behind the red curtain, and it's it's almost as if it's like on a table. It's perfectly balanced, and the, yeah. the tip of the gun's just slowly poking out. I mean, that's a that's a gif right there. If anyone's ever made that, if not, I'll probably make one for when we release this episode because it's a <laughs> wonderful shot. Um, I I kind of went for my like that I hadn't mentioned. It's actually kind of an obscure one because I could get into other great things i mean the locations are wonderful in this film i think it you know the performances of some of the other people were also great but one thing i picked up on is the use of sound in this mm. film and it's something that struck me in my second viewing but i don't know if this is a hitchcock trope i've only seen a few hitchcock films you guys are the are the experts but he's playing with sound a lot you've got some wonderful moments where like people are whispering and you can't hear it as the audience you you have to try and figure out what they're saying, and it's all mumble. There's scenes where, in the church, for instance, where the one of the, I believe the late Lucy Drayton, played by Brenda DeBanzi, uh, is is mouthing something to her colleague, but you're not allowed to know what that is. There's a phone call that the parents receive in the airport that's drowned out by an airplane landing, and all you can see is them sort of breaking down, and. It's just wild. And also the footsteps going into the taxidermist and it's sort of building tension with that. It's all just playing with sound. And I just think that's wonderful stuff. Yeah, completely agree. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's like masterful. I think I, I read somewhere, I can't remember exactly where it was, where it talked about like Bernard Herrmann's obviously the uh, composer. He's doing the score here. Um, the score's actually used quite sparingly throughout the film. I, I can't remember exactly what the. Uh, the figures were, but I think they said it was like far less than most or indeed all other Herman Hitchcock um, collaborations. Um, and I, I think perhaps a part of that is to kind of give that Albert Hall sequence, like that 12 minute, like that is a real, you really build to that because the music is so sparingly used throughout the film. Mm. Um, because there are sequences, like I think when Bernard is being chased through the streets, um, that's all. I think. I don't. Th I think that's unscored. It's unscored until he gets stabbed in the back. I think. Um, I think you're right. Yeah, um, and stuff like that, like you know, action moments like that, you would think maybe would have more of a score. Um, I think. Yeah, most of the opening kind of just plays to ambient noises of the market, and then I think the music kicks in quite nicely when the assassin comes to the hotel door and he sees um, uh, Bernard at the back, and then the the bit of music comes in there. So I think it's used very sparingly, um, which is great because it means that the sound effects can really shine through a lot of sequences. I think, too, in the original, wasn't the score... Like, there was no score except for the music at the Albert Hall, I think, in the original? You get some music in the beginning when you're played in, like a title yeah. card, and then yeah. Albert Hall, and then the out, the sort of credit sequence. That's it. Right, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and... 
I liked how much of this movie, as you said, like Scott, there's a lot of scenes that just rely on just you observing the behavior of the actors without the dialogue being audible. And I, you know, you mentioned um, Brenda Debanzi, who plays Lucy Drayton. There's that whole sequence in the church where she's communicating with her husband that Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day are in the room and he can't see them. And it's all played out silently from her. And I think she does a lot of fantastic work just silently. A lot of the internal struggle she's going through with, you know, having kidnapped this child is just playing out just through her non-verbally. And I think it's one of the really strong performances in the movie that probably gets overshadowed by the two leads. And just the fact she's not a full-on villain, so we don't tend to think of her that strongly when we think of Hitchcock villains. Yeah, I think she's probably the only one of the ones that actually gets sort of a, a, a switcheroo towards the end. She actually helps out and helps the child get away, which is a nice turn because you're, you you kind of feel sorry for her when they get the order to kill the child because she reacts so like, she's so against it, and then you you worry that she's still going to go through with it, and you see them in the the henchman in the bottom it downstairs with the rope ready to kill the kid. That and seems rather she, extreme. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's other ways of doing it. I just think, oh yeah, that, oh, that's a bit grim. Um, <laughs> it is kind of nice, like it plays into that. You know, it's a, it's a married couple versus a married couple. <laughs> I know that the, the Draytons are, uh, you, you know, that they are uh, pawns, kind of in a much larger scheme. But ultimately, it feels like it does really come down to that. And again, it's like it's subtext stuff. We know nothing about the Draytons' like relationship if they're even in love or if this is just a marriage or if they're code names or like whatever for this uh for this mission um but you know th there's no illusions of them having children themselves or anything like that and i think that um a part of you know lucy drayton's thing is you know she does genuinely like this kid and she doesn't want to harm a kid and i think it kind of plays into like oh maybe they didn't have you know maybe they didn't have kids or couldn't have kids or whatever or uh you know i, I think there's maybe something going on there which is um interesting to read into but uh, um yeah it, it, it's interesting it's a it's a very much a choice to make to not just have like your james mason villain who is very much and they do have you know there's that guy at the um some dignitary at the um embassy at the end who is very much like above them in terms of the pecking order so mm. you would think that he would be the main villain in the way that james mason is in north by northwest but they stick with the draytons and i have to believe it is because of that married couple v married couple um uh, element we interrupt this program to bring you a special report agents we have some breaking intel that's right independent podcasting is not cheap equipment hosting research these all add up and we don't have vesper lind to bail us out and also we don't want to run ads on the show leave the shopping to harry palmer we say and this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here to ask for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to meet IMF standards and give you an even better listening experience. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, Become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, 
I think I'll pivot us over to things that maybe we didn't necessarily like with the film. I think you guys have basically said it's a masterpiece, so you haven't got anything. So I guess I'll just sort of talk <laughs> well, for 15 minutes. I, 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 I would no, say, I'm... you know, <laughs> Rear Window is a masterpiece. I don't know that this film is on that level, but I think it's pretty terrific. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'll go to Calvin first. You're the guest. Is there something that um, you maybe didn't like about the film? I think me and Cam are on very similar wavelengths with this, because I'm very, like, I don't think this would eke into my top 10 Hitchcock films, uh, but I, you know, I, I don't think it's a masterpiece as such, but I do really enjoy it and love it, and I think it's great. Uh, most of it I do love. Um, I already sort of touched upon the, uh, the rear projection uh, stuff, which I know is a bit quibbly, um, but, um, you know, for, for the positive things that I just said about the, um, the Draytons, the lack of, uh, I, I think a really good villain, a Peter Laurie, kind of like a standout, um, uh, is, is to the film's detriment. Maybe it just means that that climax has, no, I, I don't really feel anything when Mr. Drayton is pushed down the stairs and shoots himself, uh, like I do with Peter Laurie anyway in the, um, original. They do have the actor i think his name is reggie nalda who plays the assassin um and i think this clearly even though i know peter laurie wasn't the assassin in the original i think that he's very much cast as the um you know the odd physical type you know it's similar to peter laurie he has some unusual features which uh you know when Litton act in the right way uh can make him look quite villainous and eerie i think he's leaning into that but i don't think he's here enough to make that much of an impression yeah I, I i would agree with that it it's tough because the film is two hours so you've got to think like, where are you going to put more stuff in for for a full villain plot but then i also think the middle bit sags so maybe you swap some of that around to build up your villain i don't know uh, i'm not alfred hitchcock but yeah i definitely do agree i, I think it is lacking that striking image of, of Peter Laurie, even if it's not so visually striking, but just someone who you could follow through and understand what they were trying to do. Now, by the end, you know, it's some sort of plot to overthrow the leader of a country from the ambassador or something. It's not very well explained, but you, you almost kind of want that operator that's fighting against your couple and you watch him as like a POV character for some of the film, like you did Peter Laurie. Mm. But that's that's just me. Cam, have you got any sort of quibbles? Well, I wanted to touch on the Draytons there as the villains, too, and that I think in one way they fix a problem with the original, but then introduce a problem that I'll mention, you know, we've talked about it, but I'll mention it's one of my quibbles. But the thing with the original that I always found a little bit tough was they kidnapped the kid, and you have Peter Lorre in charge of the kid, right? And it didn't make as much sense why he was just so accommodating. Like, Peter Laurie played him as very creepy and sinister, and then was like, oh no, we love this child, you know, just keep the child safe and all that. Versus, like, here, I think having the Draytons, I understand more of why the kid is okay. Like, there's not this, like, looming threat, so you are more shocked when they are going to execute the kid. And you can see that, you know, both the Draytons are not necessarily on board with this. So I think in terms of just, like, supporting the kidnapping plot, it works having them like this, but... The other thing is it does take away from the finale because Peter Laurie shooting himself behind a door is pretty memorable versus 
you know, an, an older gentleman tripping and falling down the stairs. <laughs> it it robs the film of a big climactic moment. And I think that's something that Hitchcock is very good at. And I think the button he has for the movie of them walking back into the hotel room and seeing their friends is really funny and really works for me as just a perfect out. But in terms of that big climactic moment, it is not Mount Rushmore. It is not, um, you know, one of the big finales of a Hitchcock movie you remember. I think I've seen this movie uh, probably four times. And I generally don't remember as much the finale being, you know, Ben Drayton tripping down the stairs. Every time I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Because it just doesn't stick with you. It's like, um, you know, uh, looking at, you know, the Bond movies, the uh, villain death in For Your Eyes Only versus like Goldfinger going out the window of that plane. It's like, oh, yeah. How, how did Julian Glover die? Oh, right. Switchblade. <laughs> right. Okay. That's kind of how I feel about uh, the Draytons. Yeah, no, I, I, and particularly when you have the the Albert Hall sequence, which is such a standout and such like, a, oh, this is a, you know, uh, such such a masterful sort of twelve minutes to kind of uh, you you know, oh, what you mean? There's another ten fifteen minutes of movie after that? Like it it can't possibly hit that peak again. So it does just feel like it kind of trickles. I do I do agree. I do like the um the button at the end where they uh, walk in on the theater friends that have been hanging around all day and they're all sleeping and stuff. I think that's one of the better ones because it is another one of my little Hitchcock pet peeves. Like he doesn't like to have like a landing scene at the end. Like he famously really didn't like that whole psychiatrist bit at the end of Psycho because he felt like it overexplained the audience. But maybe this is just me being conditioned to expect, you know, a scene at the end of every film that is just kind of like wrapping things up and everything's okay whereas Hitchcock very much just like I think of North by Northwest where it's really just like out of there like you know that mm. uh, train sequence it just you're out before you even um, have time to process that it's over um, but I think this one works quite well and another quibble I had was just the child performance <laughs> by Christopher Olsen playing <laughs> Hank I don't blame the child actor this is so much of that era. As someone who watches a lot of classic Disney stuff as well, this is what child performances were in 1950s movies. But it's a little too precocious for me. Um, it's a bit much. I, I actually didn't really bump on the, the kid too much. I thought it was quite endearing in the uh, the coach at the start. Uh, maybe asked a few too many questions, but that's probably why I haven't got kids. <laughs> Like, gee, Willikers, Dad. <laughs> Just, I don't know. I find it a little too Hollywood kitty for me. Looks like Nevada to me. <laughs> How are we comparing against Nova Pillbeam? Are we going to have a ranking of the man who knew too much children? Oh. I think, I think Nova takes the prize. I think she's better. I think yeah. so. I think she's, she's, in a story framework, she's a bit cuter. So you will like you kind of want her to be safe, maybe a bit more than the boy in the remake. I'm not saying I want him to meet the end that was going to meet him at the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> That's very dark, Scott. Very yeah. dark. <laughs> You're going in there with the rope yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's the alternate version of the film with the shotgun. Yeah, so yeah. I'll I'll be in there. To be fair to the kid, too, like Christopher Olsen has to do a lot more than Nova did in the original. Like he mm. has to have big emotional moments where he's breaking down, crying and stuff like that. And again, it's more of a 1950s acting style and a way they approach child performances that doesn't work for me as much as what he's actually doing. He's, he's probably just fine as a child actor. And to be fair, he can whistle very well and dance. 
and sing. Yeah, no kidding. If I were a child and they locked me up and were like, whistle as loud as you can, and it would be like, (laughs) (laughs) Cam, can you hear us? (sighs) Guess he's dead. Um, I've, I've already sort of said all my quibbles. I will just quickly dash back to those that little group of friends, the showbiz friends, not to to poo poo them anymore. I know Calvin, you're a fan, uh, but what Me I too. did find, <laughs> I, I I don't really care about you, Cam. Sorry. I'm there with those friends. Oh. I am just hanging out with them. The only thing I found cool just looking them up was one of them is played by uh, Hillary Brooke, who uh, people who have listening along will know she's a uh, the lady who leads the séance in Ministry of Fear. Oh my God! Really. Mm-hmm. I did not make that connection. Wow. Awesome, Scott. That's me doing my IMDb research right there. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think before we uh, mosey on up and tackle the knock list, let's just go any final notes. I have a couple of quick notes, but I'll throw it out to everyone else first. Calvin, anything left for us? Um, I guess just to say a little bit, because we spent a lot, a lot of time talking about Doris Day, I guess just to comment on James Stewart's, you know, mm-hmm. um, his own performance, because I do really like him. I think he's a really great lead, and I think he's uh, really good in some... Like, I think Doris Day obviously has the more dramatic stuff to work with. Mm-hmm. I think he's given a bit more kind of affable everyman stuff, which is, in a lot of ways, part of his usual routine. He's the one sort of fumbling around at the restaurant and uh, with the taxidermists and all that kind of stuff. He's clambering out of the church by climbing the rope up to the bell <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. He is quite... Uh, even when he's in sort of like action uh, mode, like trying to find the guy at the Albert Hall sequence, there is still something a little bit comedic and... Uh, uh, unlikely hero about him, which I think is really nice and I think works to uh, the films uh, better. Um, probably not my favorite, probably my least favorite performance of his in any hit in all of his four Hitchcock films. Um, but even then, it's I still really love him in it. And I I liked the scene where they're having like the meal. I like the kind of the travelogue stuff they do here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Whenever they're like kind of showing Morocco, and you're always a little worried that it's going to be like that 1950s, you know, um, approach to a foreign culture where you're like, oh boy. And I liked that it was portrayed as more just kind of naive and small town mm. and trying to understand it and actually asking questions because they're actually asking the um the Drayton's like oh why is it done this way and you know is it religious or is it you know social he's like no no it's it's more social and like they're actually asking those questions versus just like you know yeehaw what's this all about you know the kind of the stuff you would see in so many movies like so many movies of this era and going into the next preceding decades they would play it much more overtly comedic well, I I also really love the sort of the, the waiter in the restaurant who sees James Stewart using his other hand, just walks up and just shakes his head at him. Just, mm, <laughs> no, we don't do that here. Yeah. Um, Cam, do you have any final notes? Um, well, I wanted to just ask the two of you, because I mentioned it. What did you think of this version of the church sequence in comparison to the original one? There was no chairs being thrown. True. So I was bitterly disappointed. That was the first thing that came to my mind as well. <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess I, uh, hmm, I guess it doesn't move the dial for me much in either film. Uh, I guess I prefer the remake. Um, I, I think there's a bit more suspense to it. Um, 
yeah. Is it one of your favorite uh, scenes in, in both of them, Cam? Or do you have, like, a distinct preference? It's not one of my favorite sequences, no. But it's one I think is probably more effective here because you have, um, you know, Ben Drayton's inability. or I, I think, uh, sorry, Edward Drayton. I've been calling him Ben. I don't know where I got Ben from. It's Edward Drayton. Um, but um, you have his inability to see them in the room, which I think adds to the suspense. The lack of chair throwing is sad, but at the same time, do I want to see Jimmy Stewart hurling chairs at, um, you know, Bernard Miles as Edward Drayton? Like, I feel like it's not as much of a <laughs> physical fight. Yes, you do. The answer is always yes. <laughs> I think one thing that improves it hugely is the fact that you have him and Doris Day together versus that random uncle that showed up in the original. <laughs> yeah, the bumbling uncle had a sore tooth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely lacking a uh, scene in the dentist office, I'll tell you that. Um, I suppose for my final notes, I have a couple of questions, but one interesting observation I made first, and it's a Bond connection for you. Hmm. So uh, I, I believe it's Quantum of Solace, Calvin will correct me, where there's a chap in the background with a broom that's sweeping the air. Oh, yes. Mm. Pay attention during the Royal Albert Hall performance. <laughs> Uh, that if you look to the chap next to the guy with the cymbals, there's a guy playing very large drums. He's not even touching the drums. He's just sort of hitting the air above them. Um, it's obvious as well. Like it's as bad as the broom. I, I had to go back and watch it a couple of times and had a riot laughing at this guy just pretending to hit the drums, but missing completely. And these are big drums. These are like the size of a table. I wondered if that was like if that was an orchestra thing, like if he if it wasn't like his drums that were playing in that moment, but he was doing it to keep time with the rest of the thing. I don't. But then you can hear drums as he's like in time with him not hitting them, which is really distracting. It's like the equivalent of like if you go I don't know to a, a church, maybe you go to a wedding or something in a church, but you don't want to sing, so you just sort of mouth the words, you don't actually <laughs> sing anything. Uh, yeah, I just had a good laugh at that. Um, well, I, I'm now curious. What would be the reasons they wouldn't have him hitting the drums? They don't want the sound to be created whilst they're filming. But they're like filming musical scenes. Well, they wouldn't be constantly playing the orchestra. It, that that moment yeah. was about capturing the sound of the cymbals, so you wouldn't want the reverberation from the drums. Right. Because you need to silence that. You need to put your hands on it to stop it because they're big old drums. So you don't want to hit them so the percussion's not be made. Okay, that's fair. That's, that's the technical answer. Sorry. No, no. I appreciate that because I was wondering, like, what would be the reasons for that? But yeah, that, that makes as much sense as anything. But speaking of the symbols, I have to ask, because this chap is basically standing up for the entire performance until his final moment of glory. Is the symbol player the worst job in an orchestra? Okay. I was wondering the same thing. Is it worst or best? <laughs> like, well, if you are the symbol player and does it take training? Is it difficult to become a symbol player? Because Hot this take guy from would Cam, indicate symbol players, no yeah. training. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the symbol players union is going to be sending me angry letters. But um, <laughs> like, do you get paid the same amount as other players? Like, how does this work for the symbol? And is it the same for like a triangle player? Are you on par with like a symbol player? Punching down today, aren't we, Cam? <laughs> well, I was someone who was trained on the the triangle in uh, school, so. Um, I can relate to any triangle players out there. <laughs> All I can say is it takes precision timing. Okay. So I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure what the pay scale is. I've never played in a full orchestra before, so I don't know. Um, it does seem unfair 
Yeah. It does, doesn't it? Like the first chair violinist. You know, they've got a Stradivarius, they've got like the best violin in the world, and they are carrying the entire performance. And then there's one guy at the back just going, Ugh, drum, drum, <laughs> drum. I don't know. If I'm a cymbal player and I'm like sick and can't make it to the show, do they care? Hmm. Who gets bumped like down to cymbal player? Who's the next on the like the, the cutting line? <laughs> if like the cymbal player hasn't turned up, who's getting demoted? Well, okay, now I'm wondering if the cymbal player in a typical orchestra would be kind of a multi-instrumentalist where they have a few of those types of jobs, like a triangle, cymbals, yes. and a couple other things. That is usually the okay. answer to that question, yes. That's the boring answer, sorry. I, do, I was just playing along. Or maybe, like, we're only seeing one song here, so we the next one in the set list, he might be, like, going like one of those monkey wind-up dolls. <laughs> like, the next song is going to be a complete cymbal uh, lead. <laughs> Just think of all the lives of American families that performance would ruin. <laughs> he pulls out an electric guitar for the next song. Well, that's a different, that's a different life ruined. Well, gents, I think we have arrived at our destination, knock list time. Calvin, last time you joined us, you spoke about Goldfinger, and that made the knock list. My question to you, sir, is does the man who knew too much from 1956 make the knock list? Certainly does for me, yeah. Um, it, it's not even an on-the-line thing. I think it's it, it's quite a firm, uh, yeah, fun bit of espionage, spy, thriller, entertainment. Um yeah, it's, it, it's certainly not the first film that I would recommend people seek out when it comes to Hitchcock. I think there's much better, I think there's much better spy stuff in his filmography. But I think for what this is, it's a really solid piece of entertainment. And um, yeah, you know, if you're getting into Hitchcock, if you like North by Northwest, if you like Rear Window, this is of that ilk, I think, that is a nice kind of, um, uh, yeah, uh, may, maybe not. Uh, off, you know, maybe not complete virgin um, introduction into Hitchcock, but certainly I think it's one of the, yeah, if you're only going to give like 10 a go, this should be in there. Okay, so that's a firm yes. Cam, what have you got? I'm a yes as well for this one. And I think when you're looking at this particular era, like this is an astonishing era for Hitchcock. So I think this one often gets diminished a little bit just by comparisons to you know your rear windows and your psychos and whatever else but i think in terms of his espionage stuff this is like upper tier for me like north by northwest it really is very high same with notorious but i think this one is you know just kind of under that tier because the thing is we have other hitchcocks that we'll be doing in the future and there's at least a couple that i'm like Ugh, not looking too forward to revisiting those <laughs> Um, so to me, like, if you're looking at like the examples of very good Hitchcock espionage stories, this one definitely is on the list. Well, it's, uh, that magic combination of having a guest and us two where my vote becomes useless. So <laughs> I guess I'll retire from podcasting. No, I am. I look at the ones that are on the list for Hitchcock and I think every Hitchcock we've done so far has made the knock list count. With, well, with the exception of the original version of this. Of yeah. course. Yes, you're right. Thank you. I don't think this film is on par with The 39 Steps, Notorious, or North by Northwest. I think it is a very good film. I'm not sure it would be a must-see. And so I'm going to go with no. It doesn't matter. It is your uh, You Only Live Twice. 
Yes, I finally get a you only live twice. There we go. That, this this <laughs> is the hill I'd rather die on. <laughs> okay, fair. The volcano. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I. I. I don't. Know. I. I really loved some bits of this. I. I. I loved Doris Day in this. I mean, I love Doris Day and Calamity Jane, but this is, you know, a great film. And I, you know, I love a lot of what Hitchcock did with this film, but I just don't think I would put this in the list of things you needed to see when it comes to Hitchcock spy films, which then worries me with what you said, Cam, about other Hitchcock spy films we've got coming down the road. Uh, hmm. I want... There's one I'm thinking of, and I think Calvin will probably be able to read my mind on this, that's uh, a you know, decade plus past this one that is unbelievable to have to sit through <laughs> like i'm i'm terrified to revisit it i've only watched it once do you know the one calvin i'm thinking of i think i do do you want me to i, I won't say i'll it keep it a surprise because i, I want to be surprised by it yeah 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 i think i know exactly which one you mean and i have also only seen it once <laughs> maybe that's your that's your return oh god <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, i've had this hitchcock blu-ray set for like 10 years now it's the one disc that has <laughs> never come out. Wow. Okay. That's bad. It's bad that, that Cam wouldn't go back either, to be fair. He yeah. loves a bit of Hitchcock. Yeah. But I, I I am curious before we wrap up, you know, this film has made the knock list. Of the two versions of this film, it's the only version to make the knock list. But just a quick discussion about which we think is the, I mean, the best version, I suppose, is probably the one that's on the knock list. But just a chat, maybe comparing the two and everyone's thoughts. So, Calvin, just between the two, you know, this, is this your, your favourite? Yeah, e- easily, easily, easily a, a, a favourite. Um, I think that the originals are interesting, like, j- just to talk about, you know, if if you do sort of recommend Hitchcock films to people, uh, you know, how high up do they go? I think that the original is kind of a, that's one that you go to when you're fully settled in, when you're familiar with Hitchcock. It's it's not like, a, oh my god, you need to see this this as an example of his brilliance. Um, I think it might be more of a academic sort of exercise. Uh, that's not to say I don't enjoy it. I, I certainly enjoy it. But um, yeah, not up to the caliber of this. Uh, it has brevity in its favor i suppose because it is like what is it 80 minutes long something like that i know I, it's not even an hour and a half yeah so it's yeah so um it has that working for it uh but this just expands on it. it it's got so much more character so much more life uh the first one i think is interesting technically i think it's you can really see that they're just trying to work these characters into these situations so that they have an excuse to do this sequence that Hitchcock really wants to do whereas it just feels so much more organic in the original. Uh, uh, remake, sorry. Remake. <laughs> There's also like quite a bit more grit to the original like 1950s Hollywood is just more of a safer decade mm-hmm. and in that original you have that big shootout with some really dark humor there's maybe a little more violence to that original one that I think for certain people who would prefer a bit of a darker take on the material, that's the version to watch. Um, it's just like for me, I'm, I don't really come down one way or the other on whether I'm watching the fifties Hollywood version versus the, you know, the grittier British version. It's more to me, the character issues and how much you're keeping me going throughout. And the problem with that original for me is you just really lose threads of just narratively what's going on with your characters. And they're not playing any sort of active role in a finale, which just doesn't work the same way that I think this one does. 
I think that's fair. I think if I was asked a question to pick one, I think I think this film is the better of the two films. I think it's hard to make an argument otherwise, but I do enjoy a lot of the quirkiness of the original. Okay, it's mostly the chair throwing. That's all I'm there for. <laughs> I mean, the, the shootout at the end is technically brilliant. It's yeah. just that you're losing... Your, like, your lead characters aren't doing anything until the wife with the gun at the very end. So that's why it feels more just kind of weird but on a technical level i could happily sit and revisit that sequence well i think that about wraps us up and so we've had two yeses and a no and as such the man who knew too much from 1956 is making the knock list now before we talk about what we're doing next week calvin thank you sir for making your triumphant return to the crash of a symbol oh thank you thank you very much for having me on honestly anytime it's always it's always a joy so thank you very much i love this podcast so it's always just a it's just a delight to be here on it <laughs> well thank you sir now i mean we've had you on for a bond we've had you on for a hitchcock hmm. you you made the call last time you wanted to do a hitchcock what's your call this time do you want to do something neither of those things or do you want to go back to bond what would you like to do oh god uh oh um, no promises but i'd like to hear both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a uh, film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, ooh. I, you know what? I'm, I'm game for, for anything. <laughs> like I say, okay. I just love being here. So, uh, yeah. Hitchcock, Bonds, you know. So you're going to get the eighth The Man from Uncle TV film next time you come, then I? Oh. Or something hmm. like that. <laughs> and he retracts his statement there <laughs> or, or that um hitchcock film i was alluding to earlier yes <laughs> no i i think i might have something perfect in mind for you calvin but oh. um other than that we didn't really introduce too uh, too well at the start but for those who don't know you that well where can they find more from you Oh, yeah, you can find me on YouTube. Um, if you just search uh, Calvin Dyson, you'll find my channel. That's Calvin with a C. Dyson, like the vacuum cleaner. Um, and yeah, I make videos primarily about Bond-related uh, things. Uh, films, uh, TV, books, video games, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then occasionally we'll touch on other spy media and sort of mini-reviews. Um, so yeah, do head over to YouTube. Uh, we'll, we'll obviously have a link in the show notes below so you can go directly to that. Recently, Calvin, you brought out the the pinnacle of uh, No Time to Die retrospectives, I would say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it took a long time. It's almost as long as the film. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's very close to the runtime. But I mean, you really do go in depth. And also, it's funny, which is kind of what I want from a oh, review good. Thank like you. that. Um, probably funnier than the film it's based on. Oh, that's that 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 that's that's a compliment. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But um, what 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 have you got in the pipeline, of, and you can sort of spoil for us here? Oh gosh, um, a lot of ranking videos now, actually. Uh, which I don't know if that makes people kind of roll their eyes. <laughs> but now that No Time to Die is kind of out in the wild, mm. um, it's like, oh yeah, now I can finally start ranking villains and uh, you know Bond women, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. I would strongly recommend people check out your rankings of the different decades trailers, mm. the way they promoted those films uh, with their teasers and trailers. I found that fascinating. And some of the footage they would just shoot for those trailers and teasers. I loved it. I loved every second of it. 
Oh, I love it when they do things like that. And thank you very much. That that's. But when they, um, in fact, they with Hitchcock films a lot of actually they do. Uh, you know, some of the trailers are very interesting. I don't know if you saw the one for this, but it's uh, you know James Stewart coming out and addressing the audience and sort of saying, "Well, me and my wife went to Marrakesh, and then we came to London, and it's just kind of like talks you through it. It's really uh, interesting. But um, yes, anyway, thank you. Those videos were really fun to do. So thank you for that. Well, I think, um, you know, before we talk about the film, I, I guess, listeners, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Calvin's channel because it's got our stamp of approval. But um, Calvin, thank you for joining us once again. No, thank you very much. It's As I say, it's a pleasure. Always love it. So, yeah, thank you. Well, Cam, the question is, what are we doing next week? A little bit of a change of pace, Scott. We are tackling the 2006 Paul Verhoeven film, Black Book. I, I don't know much about this film, but what I do know is it is our first foreign language film. Correct. Yeah, we've got quite a few to cover, but for some reason we haven't done one up until now. But uh, this will remedy that. It's probably due to our lack of grasp of English, let alone any other language. Probably. I was an English major, but... No, I'm more of an English minor myself. Oh, fair enough. Um, well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Black Book from 2006 and join us next week. Now, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956 did make the knock list. And if you want to find out more films that also made the list, you can find us on letterbox.com slash spyhards. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, if you're ever feeling down, I always recommend singing. Whatever will be, will be. Hello, my name is Chris Carm, a filmmaker and podcaster. Join me as I take a look at the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and organised crime on my podcast, Secrets and Spies, available on all podcast apps. This is Mana from Spy Heaven. 